So we're, we are going to be talking tonight about the, the Holy Spirit and His role in corporate worship, and it's going to be, you know, a little bit different from our, our standard work through a passage. It's going to be more of uh, kind of a, a teaching time, a, a discussion, a Bible study, a, a theology lesson, as it were. But a lot of this, as far as when I was thinking about this topic, a lot of this is rooted in just some of the, some of the preconceived ideas and some of the, the popular notion of the Spirit and worship, okay, and how those two intersect in the midst of life and, and our experience as Christians. I mean, you'll see advertisements for worship uh, connected to spirit terminology like this. Like, you know, you'll see, okay, come join the worship experience at Dynamic Worship Church. Or you get invited, you see a flyer, you see an advertisement for the Fresh Anointing House of Worship. Or the actual flyer saying, looking for spirit-filled worship. Then join da, 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 at 7.30 where we have usually, um, you know, often th- those things are associated with, uh, with up-tempo music and um, lights and, and those types of things. But it begs the question about what, what does this mean? You know, what, what is anointed worship? When, when, when you see that, is that a thing? What is spirit-filled worship? Is that a thing? Is worship an experience primarily. Uh, most times those kind of advertisements are going to be intending to communicate uh, aspects of the gathering like, like music tempo, um, music style, emotional atmosphere, perhaps a certain level of spontaneity and physical interaction. Um, and that general understanding of what is dynamic or spirit-filled worship That general kind of understanding right there leads to some misnomers regarding the spirit and worship. And so maybe you'll hear some things like this. Um, The music was really spirit-filled this morning. The preacher was anointed. I know Rick gets that a lot. The Holy Ghost music gave me goosebumps. On the other hand, man, these conservatives can really quench the spirit when they don't lift their hands. Or, 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 or maybe a little less, you know, never at Mission Road, a little less, but that worship was so good this morning, I really felt it. Or, on the other hand, the worship was, was just dry this morning. So first off, even the misnomers, like I just said, are mostly focused on one thing when thinking about worship, and that is Music. So we need to ask ourselves a quick question. I said I was going to try and run the slides. Let's see if I can do this. There we go. Here's the question. What is corporate worship? All right. Welcome to Sunday school. We don't have time for a full development of the idea of corporate worship. All right. But worship as a term, which is often misunderstood, but in a nutshell is helpfully defined by Dan Block this way. True worship, all right, put your seatbelts on. True worship, think through all these phrases. It's kind of like our mission statement where things get just stacked, you know, one on another. But it's helpful. True worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself 
and in accord with His will. So, God says things, revelation, and commands things, gives His will. And then worship is responding to those things with willing and reverential obedience and submission. And that is why literally all of life can be worship. If God says to be a certain kind of employee, work can be worship when we respond accordingly. You guys are all writing that definition down, aren't you? Okay, you have to pay attention at the same time as well. Can you do that? Nod your head if you're listening. Okay, good. (laughs) All right, so if God says then to parent a certain way, then parenting can be worshipped when we respond and live accordingly. And on and on and on. And put yourself in any circumstance that you're in, and if God says something about it, which I guarantee He does, about how you handle your money, about how you uh, are a husband or a wife, about how you are a roommate, about how you use your time, all those types of things, then responding appropriately and in submission and obedience is worship. So if that's worship as a whole, then corporate worship is the gathering of the church, doing things in submission and obedience to God's will. I'll give you about 30 more seconds with that slide. And this is things like communion. Okay, this is things like baptism, prayer, scripture reading, preaching, singing, giving, exercising our gifts in the service of one another encouraging one another, all the one another's. If God says we're to do something in the midst of our gathering together, then it's worship when we engage in reverent obedience and respond by doing so. And so that puts it to rest. I'm sorry, Moses, you and I are not the worship leaders. All right, so if you ever introduce me as the worship pastor, I now have the right to go ahead and just gently smack you. All right? I'm not the worship pastor, all right? He's not the worship leader. We are a worship leader along with whoever else is up here encouraging you and engaging you in the various acts of worship that we engage with as a body in the midst of our time of gathering together, all right? Everything that we do as a gathered church family in response to God's will for us is worship. So, for example, we don't go from worship to the sermon, all right, because that's a distinction that's not appropriate. We don't go even from worship to prayer. That is worship also. So, I think that in and of itself changes the discussion at hand. Often, when discussing the spirit and worship, we think of one or maybe two things. We think of music, and often, usually, the feelings that we get during the music. Or we think of the sermon and how uh, the, the sermon made us feel. And that's where so much approval or displeasure seems to be focused in terms of worship and the perceived effectiveness. Like, man, I was really feeling that worship. Or, boy, worship was really dry this morning. But it's all worship. And so if we're going to be talking about the Spirit in our corporate worship, then let's talk rightly and consider His role in the whole breadth of our corporate worship service together. 
Spirit-filled worship, or lack thereof, is not just a musical or even sermonic consideration. It's the prayers, it's the fellowship, it's the ordinances, it's scripture reading, it's even church discipline and restoration is worship. Because God says to do it, and so we, as a gathered fellowship of saints, respond in submission and obedience to God and live accordingly, and in so doing, we are worshiping. So what is then the Spirit's role in corporate worship? I'm going to go ahead and burst the bubble. I don't have much new material compared to you know, what has been covered. There's not exactly like you know, the, 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 the portion of the Bible that then says, oh, and by the way, the Spirit works totally differently when it comes to gathered saints than He does in the individual lives of the saints. But when we consider our times of corporate gathering, we can take the Spirit's roles, as we've already studied, and think specifically and appreciate pointedly His work even now, especially if properly understood and distinguished from some of the cultural misnomers. One writer, Timothy Ralston, he sets the stage well, so listen, listen closely to this. Many assume that when the Holy Spirit presides over corporate worship, the worshipers will have greater exuberance and emotion. Spontaneous or unplanned acts will occur in the service, or the service itself will proceed without a preplanned order. Great danger lurks here. Popular descriptions are theological sandbars. They can shift our focus from God's inspired objective statements about His role in our worship to prejudices formed by the feelings aroused through a particular style of music or service. Here's the key. The Holy Spirit's role in corporate worship then becomes a function of our response rather than an objective theological reality. And so we miss the more basic and important roles that the Holy Spirit assumes whenever God's people gather to worship. Do you hear the gravity of that? So often it's easy to think that, well, I, I didn't really worship or the Spirit didn't show up because we're looking for the wrong things. We're looking for subjective things pertaining to emotions rather than for the objective evidences of the miraculous work of the Spirit that, that we tend to, to overlook and just sort of consider as mundane. And this can lead to feelings of guilt or, 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 or frustration. I mean, I've, I've had conversations with people where they say, I just, I don't know what's wrong with me because I don't feel a certain way when I'm singing the songs or, or sitting in the sermon or being engaged in the corporate worship. I don't feel a certain way. And what's wrong with me that I don't feel that way? Because isn't that what, what spirit-filled worship is? And so there can be guilt and frustration when you, when you try to quantify fruitful worship by those subjective experiences. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit like trying to hold those, those slippery little tube toys in your hand. You know what I'm talking about? It's got like the, the rubber toy with the liquid on the inside and use the little sparkly things and, and you grab it and then it slips inside itself and you, so you try to grab it again and the harder that you grab it, the faster it just slips through your hands. Do you know what I'm talking about? Whew, good. Okay. 
So that, that's kind of what it is. And so I, I want us to focus on the objective role of the Spirit in our corporate worship services so that we can rest in His work. So that we can trust the subjective side of things to God and that we can rejoice in the manifestations of the Spirit of God in our midst as we truly see them. So the first role of the Holy Spirit in corporate worship is this, the Spirit saves and seals. And this is not anything new. Pastor Rick covered this in the very beginning. But just for the sake of, of, uh, of refreshment, let's look at these, these verses real quick. All right, so look over in Titus with me. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of of eternal life. And then we know well what Ephesians 1, 13 says in the midst of all that wonderful description of the, uh, the work of God. How it says, in Him you also, it's in Jesus, you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's giving who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. And so the thing is to remember, without this work, you cannot worship. It's upon this work that all of our worship rests. If you're not saved, if the Spirit hasn't regenerated your heart and adopted you into the family and sealed you unto eternity, then you cannot worship. But the Spirit enables you to worship. In Philippians 3.3, Paul says, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so the Spirit enables us to respond to God's will in ways that honor Him by, by changing your heart and bringing you into faith. And He's the seal of the covenant between you and God that allows you to gather here in assurance of the hope of eternity and forgiveness of sins. And without this work, there is no worship. And so simply by gathering here, we celebrate a miracle and we celebrate the, the amazing, regenerative, transformative work of the Spirit in the lives of people who were hard and rebellious and headed to hell and were enemies of God, and yet He changed that. And so when we gather here, we celebrate the work of the Spirit and we found everything upon the work of the Spirit so never forget the miracle of your salvation, the work of the Spirit that allows you to even draw near to God, who is a consuming fire. And yet we're saved, and we're sealed, and we're adopted, and we can gather, and we can worship. 
We've also seen so much about how the Spirit unifies. I'm not going to read the, the extensive passages in Ephesians as we've covered those so, so uh, closely and, and in detail. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. The Holy Spirit unifies us in spiritual ways. All right, so we're unified through um, just the, 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 the initial even reality of our salvation. We're unified in the confession of similar doctrine. We're unified in the idea of, of family, the fact that when you look around, you look at brothers and sisters, all right? As a committed church body together, we are brothers and sisters in the same spiritual family, unified by spiritual realities that transcend physical and blood realities. We talked about how he unifies us in our identity as a temple. I hope you were, you were staggered by that, and I hope that as we sit and as we think right now, that God is with us in a unique and special way as the gathered church. Okay, and that's an important part of worship. Simply by being who we are and doing what we do, there is that truth. He also unifies us in practical ways, and that's been such an emphasis throughout Ephesians as well. The Jews and the Gentiles, and you take that and you apply it to our life now, and regardless of race, regardless of, of, of financial situation, of background, of, of marital status, of familial status, or any of those things, God unifies us into a family and into his people. And you say, okay, yeah, 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 whatever. We've been over this. But, but stop. But stop and look around you, all right, and think about the people that are around you and ask yourself, would I gather with this person outside of the bond of the Spirit and the work of salvation? <laughs> and that could be a personal thing or it could be a circumstantial thing. I'd never have crossed paths with this person, and yet here we are. I wouldn't prefer naturally to cross paths with this person, and yet here we are. And yes, I know I am that person to some of you, and that's okay. But likely not. Right? It's, it's, it's not likely that, that there would be this bond, this unity with each other. And so we need to remember to just pause and say, this is supernatural. This is not normal. I mean, it's not normal for somebody to walk in to a large group of people, and Lord willing, this is how we treat visitors, and especially as we hear maybe their, their testimony and know that, yes, they have a faith in Christ. It's not normal, and I experienced this when I went over to Italy, it's not normal to immediately be family. But that's worship, and that's the Holy Spirit of God at work radically in our lives where we'd be prone probably just to put the hands up and say, hey, buddy, back up. 
But in Christ, we're brought near to one another and we're bonded together. And that's a miracle. But so often we just kind of like, well, I'm going to church. I see the same old people. But that is the work of God. He takes people who might never have met and he brings them together for mutual good. He takes people who might not get along but miraculously are given a bond of unity that allows them to pursue each other's good. And that's, that's not you or I being such magnificent, magnanimous people. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the Spirit in the midst of our corporate worship. So don't take it for granted. Appreciate it. Marvel at it. Be thankful for it. Next, the Spirit sanctifies. All right, He does this specifically through, through conviction and encouragement. Have you ever felt convicted by a biblical truth in our gatherings? No? No heads are going, yeah, okay, maybe some of you. That's the Spirit. Have you ever been encouraged by a truth heard in our gatherings? That's the Spirit. Have you ever walked away impacted by a truth you've heard so many times before and yet never been so impressed with, with the meaning and, and, and the implications of that truth? And you just go, ah, oh, that's been in the Bible the whole time? And that's the Spirit. And John 16, that, that just astounding passage where Jesus promises to give the Holy Spirit, to, to give a helper, where he even says, look, it's going to be to your benefit that I go and that the Holy Spirit comes, which is just a staggering statement but he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, we see that the Spirit impresses the Word of God in such a, a radical way into the lives of the Thessalonians that not only are they converted, but that their lives are changed and, 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 and in such a way that they become completely transformed in their reputation in the communities around them. And look, the key here is not the eloquence of the preacher or the pizzazz of the musicians, it's the truth of God. As the Spirit sanctifies you in the midst of our, our, our corporate worship, it's the truth of God as presented in the midst of our worship that the Holy Spirit drives home for our good and for our growth. And albeit that can be sometimes painful that He does that, but it's always for our good and always for our growth. And you can have the world's best band up here. 
and the truth is not driven home. And you can have the flashiest preacher up here, and the truth is not driven home. Or you can have the boringest preacher up here, and the truth can be driven home by the work of the Spirit of God in such a way that you are just blown away as if your eyes have never been opened before. And it can just be me at the piano. And yet, we sing songs, and the truth is, is so wonderfully proclaimed that your heart just wants to burst because of the, the magnificence of who God is and what He's done. It's not, the, it's not the, the eloquence of the preacher, which is a good thing for me. And it's not the pizzazz of the musicians. We have some good musicians, but it's not their fault. It's not their, it's not their doing. Look, the reality is, from a musical standpoint even, I'd say the most important thing, actually, biblically, is not what happens up here. If you want to know what makes music ministry effective, it's not what happens up here, it's what happens out there. All right, we're trying to sort of usher you and help you and, 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 and facilitate you in your worship to God and your worship to God as you sing to one another, as Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 say. But this whole notion of the Spirit sanctifying, and this is what I want you to take away from this thought in the midst of our corporate worship, is that as those things happen to you, as you're encouraged, or as you're convicted, or as you're edified, then that, that is effective, Spirit-filled worship if you want to, like, try to use that term and give it a good definition. And we'll get to that in just a second. <laughs> but fruitful worship or effective worship, is, is that's a huge part of it. And that's the beauty of, of illumination. All right, as Pastor Adam preached last week and taught you about, we should be humbled and amazed when the Holy Spirit impresses truths upon our hearts opens our minds to grasp the breadth and depth of Scripture's meaning and implication. And, and, and because of that, changes our attitudes, our thinking, our behavior as a result. This is what Dale was teaching this morning in Sunday school, right? The difference between all those, 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 those counseling perspectives and, and worldviews and approaches is, well, the real direction and, and, and impetus and power to change lies in the Spirit's work as He wields truth in our lives. And when He wields truth in our lives, folks, that's, that's fruitful worship. That is fruit. But here's another thing that we often take, advantage, uh, uh, take for granted is the Spirit empowers ministry worship. Let's look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 real quick. And again, we covered this as far as like some of His role, but then I don't think that we often necessarily think about it in terms of the Spirit being a part of our corporate worship. But here's the truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. It says this, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit... And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But, here's the key, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I don't know about you, I was just, this was definitely a moment of good worship for me. Because when Pastor Rick preached this two Sunday mornings ago, 
I sat there stunned by the, by the, by the work of God's Spirit to remind me that when people use their gifts in our church body, it is manifestation of the Spirit. It is God's Spirit working in us, to us, amongst us. Okay, it's the same idea as like, like when, when Jesus says, you know, in as much as you do this to, to these, then you're doing it to me. There is that, there is that unreal identification of us as we are in Christ such that we minister as God to one another. We minister as the Spirit in us to one another. And, but do you think of those things as Spirit-driven worship? You know, if you're like me, you probably neglect that line of thinking. But when a brother or sister prays with you, and you find your soul encouraged, that's spirit-driven worship. Regardless of how many warm and fuzzies you got in the songs, that is the spirit at work as we respond in obedience and submission, and he's doing what he has said he will do in our midst. And so when you see the same precious saints downstairs loving your kids week in and week out, selflessly teaching them and caring for them to show them Christ and to enable you this time of focus, that's spirit-driven worship because that is the Spirit empowering those people with gifts to manifest the Spirit to us as a church body for our good and for our edification. And I just don't necessarily think about it like that all the time. But if I stop and if I pause and I think about it, then I go, poof. So when you're standing out in the foyer chatting and a brother comes alongside you, and if you don't have brothers like this, I'll give you some names, and you need some. And they say something hard that's designed to propel you away from sin and towards Christ. You know what? That's good worship. That's the Spirit of God working in our midst together. When the preacher clearly articulates the truth of God and exhorts you to learn and live accordingly, he's doing what God has empowered him to do. And he is manifesting the Spirit for your good. And that's Spirit-driven worship. There are, if, if you trace that, this point out, okay, there are myriads of tangible demonstrations of the Spirit's work in our worship. Myriads upon myriads. Look, when you come on a Sunday morning that there's been ice or snow and that has all been taken care of, you know what? That was the Spirit of God working in the midst of worship. But sometimes we have to kind of get outside of, of what can be selfish, subjective desires for that experience. And we have to consider what, what, I, what I could only call the mundane miracles 
All right, the things that we just sort of take for granted is, yeah, they do this and they do this and this person does that and, and I do this and this just kind of church. That's God's spirit. And that's so important. It's so important. Mundane miracles that the Holy Spirit is always doing in our midst. So those are some of the most poignant roles in our worship that the Spirit can do. He is the establishment. He is the foundation um, of, of our gathering, of our unity, of our salvation. Um, he is the one who takes the truth of God as, it, as it's presented in the midst of the corporate gathering, and He sanctifies us through both encouragement and through conviction. And then He's the one that is, that is empowering all of the worshipful ministry that goes on when we gather and we do anything that is in obedience and submission to God's revealed will. Okay, since you all wrote that definition down, go back and take a quick look at it again. So, like I said in the beginning, there are some misnomers about worship and the Spirit. I was really helped again by Timothy Ralston here. and Think, think about the phrase, you know, well... Those musicians were really led by the Spirit. Okay. Granted, we can all make spontaneous choices. You might not know it, but even I can be spontaneous sometimes. It does happen. Okay. But hopefully you've understood, based upon Adam's teaching last week and Myra's teaching this morning, that being led by the Spirit is not, is not a, a term that refers to, um, you know, how, how the songs get played out. Being led by the Spirit isn't a matter of, oh yeah, oh yeah, we're going to add a chorus right here. Because everybody's really feeling it. It's, it's not that. It's, it's discerning righteousness from evil and pursuing righteousness. That's how the Spirit leads. We're led by the Spirit during corporate worship when we seek after and pursue the things that God wants for us in corporate worship. I don't care how many warm and fuzzies you get. If you're not exercising your gift for the good of the church body, you are not engaged in good worship. But on the flip side... If we're seeking the righteousness of God and seeking to live in responsiveness to Him and for the edification of the saints and God's praise and submission to His proclaimed word, then I don't care how many warm and fuzzies you got or didn't get. You know what? Good worship is happening. And I'm not saying you don't get warm and fuzzies or... You know, like, I'm not saying we're not emotional beings, but I'm saying that's not the, the definition of good worship or spirit-filled worship or juicy worship as opposed to dry worship, okay? Whatever you want to call it. Like, I'm just, I want us to have the, the objective definition right so that we don't get bogged down by, by needless discouragements or wrong frustrations or... False guilt. What about the idea of, of quenching the Spirit? All right, and if we look in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we can go look over there real quick. Go ahead and turn over to 
First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians five nineteen. Let's see. Well, let's start in verse fourteen. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for that is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. See, usually, it's, well, it's, it's, I guess maybe not usually, but it's not uncommon to say, well, the spirit was really quenched when the guitarist forgot his capo. Right, Chris? Totally kills the spirit. I mean, you forget the capo, you start in the wrong key, and we're in this key, and it sounds like a musical train wreck, and everybody's mood is busted, and oh, man, the, the spirit's quenched. Well, no. I mean, yeah, we have to sit there and wait awkwardly while the guitarist puts his capo on and then we restart the song. Like, I get that. But the Spirit is quenched when we don't honor the leaders of the church, when we don't live in peace with one another, when we don't seek each other's sanctification and good, when we repay evil for evil, when we are grumpy or ungrateful and unprayerful, when we're easily deceived and obstinately opposed to God's revelation, that quenches the Spirit. So next time that the guitarist forgets his capo, just roll with it. It's okay. We can still worship. Okay, this idea. You're invited to a Spirit-filled worship time. Look, I, I just can't even figure out how that's a term. Spirit-filled worship as like an event, our worship is not to be spirit-filled per se. You know who's supposed to be spirit-filled? You and me. Or as Rick would say, y'all and me. Okay? We are the ones who need to be concerned with being spirit-filled. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And you know how we know whether we as individuals and as a church body are being spirit-filled? Well, Ephesians 5.18 tells us. Look over there. Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Great. What does that look like? How do we know if we're filled with the Spirit as a church body? Is it because of... The ecstatic experiences that we have? No. Is it because of the spontaneous dancing up and down the aisles? No. Is it because of the, the, the whatever situation you want to talk about? No. Is it because we sing and we make melody with our heart to the Lord? Yes. Is it because we're giving always, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father? Yes. Look at this. Is it when we're subject to one another in the fear of Christ? Yes. Brothers and sisters, humble submission to one another is far more of a quantifiable, objective 
spirit-filled act of worship or the worship of a spirit-filled person than is some sort of warm and fuzzy that you get. And again, I'm not saying warm and fuzzies are bad, but they are bad if they're the measure of effective or fruitful worship for you. So everything that Ephesians 5, 18 and on just said, well, that's, that's spirit-filled worship, which I said isn't a term. So we'll just say, well, that's the worship of spirit-filled people. That's the worship that happens in the midst of a spirit-filled church. So again, warm and fuzzy is out the window if mutual subjection is not happening. Physical exuberance out the window if grumpiness and ingratitude and grumbling and complaints happen out there in the foyer. Ah, getting real, right? Okay? Okay, so quick sidebar. I love this. I'm trying to jam like as many thoughts as I've ever wanted to say <laughs> in this time. But there's no Chiefs game, so it's me. I can go like 79 minutes and we're all good, right? Oh, okay. Quick sidebar. What, what about physical responses? Okay. Uh, what about emotion? Look, we are emotional beings. And we're naturally wired to respond even to things of, of, of beauty. And we're naturally, this is one of the joys of music, we're naturally uh, wired to respond to music. And so there are physical responses that are biblically described, even commanded, and are absolutely appropriate, but they're not the measure of worship. Okay, we tracking? I hope I have established the most objective definition in our church of what, what does it mean when the Spirit's at work in our corporate worship. But some of these things about raising hands, and I don't have time to like give lots of verses and stuff like that. We can, <laughs> I told Adam, I looked over his notes from last week, and I was like, man, everybody's saying, if you have questions about this, well, let's grab coffee. So if you have further questions about these things, let's grab coffee. But raising of hands, okay? There you go. Raising of hands. Look, biblically, Raising of hands is described as a cultural expression of need and dependence. All right. Most often in the Bible, raising of hands is, is, is found in a situation of orienting communication, mostly of prayer. I think I found one verse where it's directly associated with song. But most of the times it's saying, look, in your prayer, which is communication to God, and song towards God is communication to God. So I understand the overlap. Great. But most of the time, raising of hands is seen as, a, as an act of need and dependence and orienting communication towards the audience, which in this case would be God. All right, that's, that's biblically fine. That's biblically appropriate. I think you have a greater weight of evidence on the side of we should probably pray with our hands outstretched than sing necessarily with our hands outstretched, but I can see overlap, okay? But that, that notion of, of need and, and dependence and orientation of communication is, is the idea of raising of hands. However, here's where it gets a little sticky. 
If the reason you raise your hands is because the musicians are saying, all right, man, we're going for an eighth note drive, and we're going to build this guy up, and then we're just going to drop it away, and suddenly the whole thing's going to go, wah, and everybody's hands are going to go, wah. Which, here's the thing. We can do it. Because music is powerful, and music is amazing, and music is a gift from God, but music can make you cry, and you don't know why. Music can make you dance and you can't help it. Music can, can, can make you want to lift your hands and you're like, whoa, what, what's going on here? Okay, and, and so there, there's, there's the idea that, well, music can do something, but in the Bible, we see those things as a response to truth. All right? So that's the crux of the matter here. With all of these physical manifestations, look, they're in the Bible. I mean, dancing's in there, which our aisles are off limits, but if you want to have some rhythmic movement in the midst of your, in the midst of your row there, go for it, okay? But if it's based upon truth, if the truth of God, of who he is, of what he's done, of how you're seeing him work in the midst of the church body around you, and they are just being so encouraging to you, and in the midst of all of that, you're just like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta clap. That's in the Bible. And it's not like the two and four, you know, let us sing to, that, that's not in the Bible. As much as I wish it was, it's not. When you see clapping in the Bible, it's spontaneous applause. All right, it's, it's, it's actual just applause, and it's a sign of affirmation of truth. It's actually really often a sign of victory or even of derision over conquered enemies. All right, and rejoicing in the work of God. So again, like I, I like to have you participate on a musical level, but that's not what the Bible is saying when it says clap your hands. What the Bible is saying is appreciate the truth of who God is, of what he's done, of what he is doing, and of what he will do. Appreciate that. Feel that in such a way. Have it press into your heart by the work of the Spirit in such a way. And if it then propels you to give response to that with that physical gesture, go for it. Now, here's the thing. You want to know what the most frequent biblical physical response is? Bowing. Or kneeling, but mostly bowing. On your face. Because God is so overwhelming. And we don't exactly have room for that. But as one is humbled by the awareness of the majesty of God, then there, then in the Bible we see it all over that there's this, there's this response of, of just abject humbling and crumpling before the greatness of who he is. And maybe the best closest that we can get to that in here is, is to sit. Okay. If you are so overwhelmed by the person and the work of God that you just must lower yourself before him, then sit. Put your head on the chair in front of you and bow yourself before God. 
But not if it's because the music has just stirred something. But if it's because the truth of God is, is, is being impressed upon you in such a way by the Spirit that you want to respond, then great. But those things, which, which are all biblical, they're all appropriate, uh, given the right motivation and the right execution, they're all fine. They may or may not be the result of the Spirit's work, and they are not necessarily a sign of good worship, although they can be. And their lack is not necessarily a sign of bad worship, especially depending on the moment. These are best seen as appropriate physical responses to an internally impactful spiritual truth. Now, we generally have much more cultural freedom to express those types of things in other uh, uh, contexts, like sports. If you're at the game and the touchdown happens, you know what probably happens? Whoa, the hands go up because you're pumped. Like, it just, it just kind of happens. Or if you're at the game and they lose, then you, you crumple in despair, and there's that physical response. But the idea is the same. If the truth of God drives you to your knees, prompts you to applaud, draws your hands up in supplication and engagement, then that's where we see the biblical, biblical examples of such actions coming into play. And honestly, the more deeply you feel the impact of those truths, the more prone you likely will be to an appropriate physical response. So if the truth of God in the midst of worship, hmm, I know you're thinking music right now. Don't think music right now. If the truth of God in the midst of worship moves you, then go ahead and let it out. But an emotional or physical response to corporate worship is the most subjective, insecure measure by which we can assess the work of the Spirit in our corporate worship. John Frame says this, there is no technique for ensuring that such experiences take place. All we can do is to make sure that our worship follows God's commands and to make sure that our own hearts as worshipers are seeking to honor the Lord. Even that will not guarantee a special feeling of God's presence for every worshiper in every spirit or every service, sorry. But our worship will be authentic in the sense that matters most. It will please God and edify the congregation. And that should be enough to satisfy us as worshipers. I think that's a really important statement. I think it's a really important statement to guard us against a wrong cultural notion that tends to lead towards guilt and discontentment and frustration. So again, our worship will be authentic in the sense that matters most. It will please God and edify the congregation, and that should be enough to satisfy us as worshipers. So just a few closing thoughts in reflection upon the matter. What do we do, however, when we don't feel something? First, always trust the person and work of God. Trust Him. Trust Him far more than you trust your warm and fuzzies or lack thereof. 
Trust the work of the Spirit. Trust the evidences of the work of the Spirit as Pastor Myra will preach this morning. Trust those to be evidence of His work in your life more than the warm and fuzzies or the lack thereof. You guys are probably sick of me saying warm and fuzzies. I just like it. Trust the person and work of God. He does what He says He will. And hopefully you understand more and more what the Spirit of God does in your life and in our gathered community. So I hope, I know I have been encouraged by this series and like my, my radar as it is, my awareness is more like ping, alert and aware to, to be like, wow, that's, that's what he does. Wow, this, is, this is him at work. And so th- this is really helpful for me and hopefully... Uh, you are understanding that and appreciating that more and more. And sometimes that seems more tangible than others, but our feelings don't prevent God from accomplishing His work. And I would say to you, your feelings don't necessarily, they don't even prevent your obedience from being and your submission from being acceptable worship. So second, if that's first, always trust the person and work of God. Second, focus on truth rather than emotion. Measure bad worship, okay? Measure that by a lack of edifying, exalting truth present in the gathered worship. And look, if you feel that or sense that or see that or perceive that, then bring it up to leadership. Talk to Pastor Rick. Talk to me and say, Aaron, your songs are garbage these days. I'm not being edified by the truth in them. We'll have a a talk. I need to hear that. Okay, but that's how you measure bad worship. If there's a lack of edifying, exalting truth, because that's what true corporate worship is. God is exalted and the church is edified, and that happens when the Spirit drives truth to bear. Measure, on the other hand, good worship by the truth on the preacher's lips, by the truth heralded by the musician, and by the truth that's spoken and sung by all of us out in the congregation, your brothers and sisters around you. Those are the truths that will shape you, will anchor you, will uplift you and will drive you towards Christ in a far more lasting way than some fleeting sensations. Or as I like to say, the warm and fuzzies. Third, seek sanctification in life before you seek a sensation in worship. All right? Seek sanctification in life before you seek a sensation in worship. If you're led, as Pastor Meyer will preach this morning, if you're led by the Spirit in life, and on the flip side, if you're not grieving or quenching the Spirit, in the true sense of the words, with hypocrisy, stubbornness, or disobedience, then you can trust corporate worship to be the kind of experience that God wants it to be, while knowing that it is objectively authentic, as John Frame said. All right, so I hope that's helpful for you. I hope it uh, is instructive and, and edifying. And if so, then praise the Lord because the Spirit's at work. And if you have further questions about any of those things, then let's grab coffee. I think Dale asked, you know, invited invitations to coffee this morning as well. So there's a theme here, all right? We are always happy to talk more, to open the Bible more, to uh, discuss these things more. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm, I'm humbled by the opportunity here. I'm, I'm humbled by just this church family that you've brought together, your immense grace as evidenced 
in each of our lives. And as evidenced by the fact that we're drawn here in unity by the bond of Christ and the work of the Spirit. We thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that you would work tremendous encouragement and conviction and edification in the midst of our, our gathered services uh, to, to, tonight and, and every week in the week to come, even in such a way as 1 Corinthians 14 says, so that people will, will hear of the truth and will see, unbelievers would even hear the truth and would see the response of the people to your truth and, and, and loving you, and they would be impacted by it. We ask, Lord, for you to be with us this week, to help us be led by the Spirit, to walk with the Spirit, or to put ourselves in such a position as to be filled with the Spirit and to live that out. And so that even next Sunday as we seek to gather again, then we can give voice to the overflow of that and seek to worship you corporately. We're thankful for the opportunity that we've had and pray that you bless the fellowship now. In Jesus' name, amen.